Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the slave ship Guerrero sunk off the coast of South Florida with 561 Africans aboard. Eric Denson from Divers with a Purpose believes the ship has been found. We did find quite a bit of artifacts to really point to that date, the type of ship, and so those uh, those key of artifacts and evidence really point to that time frame. We'll look at first edition books by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, including a copy of The Yearling, personally inscribed by the author. And she goes on to, to describe line by line uh, what the book is about and gives a, a sort of a brief synopsis of the, of the story. Uh, and then at the end, on the second page, she signs uh, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. We'll go to St. Cloud, which started as a retirement community for Civil War veterans. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the Soweto Gospel Choir singing Amazing Grace, a song written in 1779 by former slave trader John Newton based on an African melody. The slave ship Guerrero was lost at sea off the coast of South Florida on December 19, 1827, with 561 Africans aboard. Underwater archaeologists now believe that the ship has been found. Eric Denson is lead diving instructor for the Diving with a Purpose Underwater Archaeology Program, the group started in conjunction with the National Park Service and the National Association of Black Scuba Divers to have African Americans participate in the search for the slave ship Guerrero. That effort was filmed for the PBS documentary series Changing Seas in the episode Sunken Stories. The National Park Service uh, has over 100 uh, shipwrecks in the Biscayne National Park area. And again, the program started during the uh, documentary filming of the Guerrero Project. And one of the main stars of the uh, documentary was the late Brenda Leisendorf, who was the underwater archaeologist for the National Park Service. She needed help to document the shipwrecks in Biscayne National Park. And so she asked our organization to help her out. And, and she would teach us the basics of underwater archaeology. And it would help uh, um, document, again, those shipwrecks. Uh, but at the same time, it would prepare us as an organization and the individual divers to able to do the search for the Guerrero 
that that we wanted to, that we wanted to document and and find, and so they gave us the skills to really do a, a good job of actually documenting the shipwreck, and uh, you know to actually understand what we were doing <laughs> as far as underwater archaeology was concerned. The illegal slave ship Guerrero was operated by pirates when it was attacked and sunk off the coast of South Florida in 1827. More than 100 Africans survived, but 561 were trapped on board. Eric Denson and it was actually on its way to Cuba with uh, Africans. I think it was over over uh, six or seven hundred Africans, and uh, it was chased by a British uh, Navy ship called the Nimble. And uh, the chase uh, began, and uh, a storm came, and they both got uh, um, shipwrecked off the coast of Key Largo. And during that time, about 561 uh, Africans uh, perished during that battle. Um, they were both stuck on the reef, and then some wreckers came. The wreckers, the ones that they would call good Samaritans, if you will, to, to come and actually help uh, get, the, get the ships off of the reef. And the pirates actually took one of the uh, wrecker ships and ended up going to Cuba with uh, some of the remaining slaves. Uh, some of the slaves were rescued, and they ended up in Key West and eventually made their way back to Liberia. Eric Denson says that Divers with a Purpose is a predominantly African American group of experienced divers who underwent training in underwater archaeology to explore important shipwrecks that others may overlook. We wanted to be prepared and train divers that you know when we had the opportunity to look for the Guerrero and to look for uh, other slave ships in general uh, to be prepared and and to document those shipwrecks because typically uh, when we look at marine archaeology. And other things like that, people look for the, the, the big Spanish galleons, the, the titanics of the world. Uh, so a lot of things that are less glamorous or uh, are, are kind of left behind, but they're an important part of our history. Um, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, uh, it, is, it is our history. And so we wanted to be able to concentrate on those things that are not the mainstream. Since their start in 2005 with just three members, Divers with a Purpose has trained 95 underwater archaeology advocates, including 19 young people. 28 of the graduates have gone on to become Divers with a Purpose instructors. Working in conjunction with the Mel Fisher Heritage Society and NOAA during underwater excavations in 2010 and 2012, the Divers with a Purpose believe they found and identified the slave ship Guerrero. We had three different sites in the area, um, off the coast of Key Largo area, um, sites that bordered the National Park Service, uh, uh, Biscayne National Park, and also the uh, National Marine Sanctuary down there. And so through historical documentation, we got an idea of where this uh, battle took place and where the ships uh uh, where, where the ship wrecks, uh, you know, came about. So we had to do a few different sites that we wanted to explore. We did magnetometer, size scan, sonar to get hits in certain areas. And so we narrowed it down, and the sites that we did, although we, there was no smoking gun, like you say, uh, something that jumped out and said Guerrero, uh, we did find quite a bit of artifacts that really point to that date, the type of ship. Uh, and so those uh, those key uh piece of artifacts and evidence really point to that time frame. We've picked up all different pieces of glass and cannonballs, uh, um, and again, a lot of different glassware, the pieces of wood um, that point to the type of uh, the, where the ship was built, 
And again, a lot of these artifacts point to that date and time. Um, we, and we know that the nimble losses anchored on the battle, and we also we found an anchor that fit for that type of ship, that era. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, empirical evidence that, that points to that, to that uh, site, to that wreck. Some of the artifacts that are believed to be from the Guerrero include a cologne bottle from the early 1800s, bone china, lead shot, blue-edged pearlware or earthenware, metal rigging, copper fasteners, wooden plank fragments, and more. These items are not as easy to spot as it might seem, which is why Eric Denson trains experienced divers to conduct underwater archaeology. You jump in, everything looks like a piece of coral, everything looks like a rock. <laughs> and so you, you really have to start training your eye to look for things that don't really occur in nature, right angles and 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 different odd shapes to look man-made. So that it, Because these things have been down there for... Uh, hundreds of years, they're covered with coral, and so um, things that uh, are are that would be evident, you know, or cannon or cannonball that you know things have been done and encrusted with coral. It's very hard to see, so you have to get a good trained eye and, and and really start to look and pay attention and take your time and 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 look for these objects, and they begin to jump out at you. <laughs> Perhaps the most important part of the work that Divers with a Purpose does is to meticulously document archaeological sites like the wreck of the slave ship Guerrero. We do uh, mapping of the of the of the um, artifacts and the shipwrecks. We we perform trilateration mapping. We do what we call in situ drawings of these objects, and that's actually doing drawings and measurements of the artifacts and, and the shipwreck underwater. And so we do that real time. And we put this all in a composite map. We take pictures associated with those with that map, and so that gives us a context of where the artifacts are in relationship to the entire site, and it also helps us to identify these uh, objects. Because again, the artifacts themselves tell a tale. They tell a tale of a period that the ship may have went down, or the period when it was built. You know, things change over the course of days. I mean, uh, decades and. In time, so you can really get a feel for, you know, when and where, you know, the ship may have been built or what age it is and that type of thing. But again, you have to document all of that and then do your research later. When people hear about the discovery of underwater shipwrecks, some imagine treasure hunters searching for gold and other valuable objects. Eric Denson points out that the underwater archaeology his group does is much different. We abide by a lot of coda, coda ethics. Um, a lot of these sites, they're historical sites that need to be preserved, and also they need to be respected. Like in the case of the Guerrero, there there may be human remains there, so you can't treat this as you know site we come in there and just blow up things and just grab stuff and bring it up just for profit. Um, we we bring things up for scientific research just to help us identify the the shipwreck or. Again, get, get the period. But the biggest thing for us, too, is to document this and also share it and educate the public. And I think that's where the, the archaeology comes in and the science comes in and the education comes in. Divers with a Purpose was started to assist with the search for and documentation of the Guerrero shipwreck, but the organization has expanded quickly, and they have exciting plans for the future. Yeah, um, again, I mentioned that uh, we started in Biscayne National Park, but we have uh, expanded well beyond the borders of uh, um, National Park there in Biscayne. 
quite a few of us have become NOAA science divers, and we do work with NOAA not just in Florida. We've been up into Great Lakes and, and done work with them up there, even over in the Pacific. Um, and we have some very unique opportunities coming up. Uh, we got a grant that, uh, that will actually allow us to go and train um, archaeologists uh, or DWP training session in Africa where we have a mission coming up in Mozambique and so that uh, to train folks over there and document possible slave ships there in, in, in Africa so we're very excited about that. Eric Denson is lead instructor for Diving with a Purpose that group assisted in the discovery and documentation of the wreck of the slave ship Guerrero which was sunk off the coast of South Florida on December 1827. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch the original courtroom drama Ponce de Leon Landed Here, listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society and support our educational outreach efforts throughout the state. That's myfloridahistory.org. Lake George, Florida, April 1878. I came across this lake once, some years ago, in a little mail boat that brought me home after fighting in the war with the Yankees. Came down this broad river going back into the wilderness, away from civilization, looking for a place to settle, a place to live, back into the scrub country. It got wilder as I got deeper into the woods. I liked vegetation was denser, the trees had to struggle for a breath of air. Even wilder here as I got back closer to the sources, to the beginning of things.
further away from towns and wars. And then I left the river, went right into the woods themselves. That's Gregory Peck in the 1946 film adaptation of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Yearling, from 1938. Rawlings is one of the best-loved Florida writers, and she donated many of her works to the Florida Historical Society. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist for the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, one of the items in the FHS archive is a first edition copy of The Yearling inscribed with a personal message from Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Sure, this is probably one of the uh, uh, more interesting autographed uh, copies of a book that we have in the archive. Uh, this is a, a, a first edition copy of The Yearling uh, written by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings uh, and published in 1938. Uh, and on the front cover... Uh, it's a, there's a handwritten inscription. It says, For the Florida Historical Society, uh, Florida, 1938. It says, The yearling is laid in 1870-1871 for the express purposes of using the flood uh, in storm of 71. My sources were trustworthy eyewitnesses. And she goes on to, to describe line by line uh, what the book is about and gives a, a sort of a brief synopsis of the, of the story. Uh, and then at the end, on the second page, she signs uh, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Wow, that's really interesting. And uh, she donated uh, copies of her other books as well. You have uh, correspondence uh, regarding her donations to the Florida Historical Society as well as the books themselves. Right. We actually have uh, almost uh, 50 documents that relate to Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings and her relationship with the Florida Historical Society. One of the earliest is actually from 1937. Um, the then president of the Florida Historical Society, uh, Watt Marchman actually solicited Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, who was a member of the society. We're not exactly sure when she became a member, but she was a, a member at that time and had gained some notoriety. Well, he wrote a letter, uh, letter to Rawlings asking for uh, signed copies of her books for the uh, library, for the archive here at, at, Florida, at the Florida Historical Society. Uh, we actually have um, her response letters that say, yes, I'd be pleased to, to send you uh, copies of my first two books. And then at the end, she says, well, I'm working on another manuscript. I'll go ahead and send you that, too. And that manuscript she was working on was The Yearling, which became probably her, her most famous work. Well, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings also gave presentations for the Florida Historical Society at their annual meeting, uh, and you have documents related to that as well, right? Right, correct. Um, again, I'm not exactly sure how many times she spoke um, at, at FHS annual meetings, but um, we have evidence uh, at least of, of one uh, meeting in 1939 in St. Augustine, and, and she was uh, delighted. And you can tell by the tone of the letter, she was, uh, uh, it seemed like she was flattered, you know, and she was very happy that uh, she was sort of being accepted by the Florida Historical Society. Um, uh, and she writes that she'd be happy to be there, and, and she's going to talk about how uh, she fits uh, Florida history into her fictional works. And I think that was really the, the uh, scope of most of her talks that she gave at the Florida Historical Society uh, annual meetings and also other, uh, other meetings. But she was excited to uh, and really wanted to, to talk about the, the research that went into these books and how close they were to reality. And I think that was really what she um, tried to accomplish in these fictional works. Well, these personally inscribed books and, and letters to the Florida Historical Society are really fascinating, but perhaps most interesting is, is a journal that Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings found that she actually used as a basis for her best-known novel, The Yearling. 
Yeah, this is really cool. And, and I didn't even know this existed. And I, in fact, I didn't even know that the Florida Historical Society uh, still own this journal. But uh, back in the, in the 1930s, uh, Marjorie Kenan Rollins describes uh, going on a fishing trip in uh, what is now the Ocala National Forest on a, a lake uh, up there called Lake Kerr. Um, and they came across an old uh, plantation home. Uh, and in the letter, she says that she, uh, she in, the, in the fishing party, decided to go ashore to try and find fresh water. Uh, well, she started poking around inside this farmhouse and came across an old journal. Uh, and she decided to keep that journal, and she did. So she brought it with her and started reading through it. It turns out it was a journal from uh, uh, Mr. Williamson, who had settled uh, in this area around Lake Kerr uh, in the 1850s. And the journal uh, actually covers day-to-day activities on the farm from 1853 to 1873. What's really interesting is that we have, uh, again, documentary evidence, letters, uh, that show that she was um, that she used a lot of this material as a basis for sort of the, the background of, of day-to-day life in this part of North Central Florida uh, that was incorporated into the yearling uh, later on. So she then donated it, donated the journal to the Florida Historical Society sometime around 1940, and we still have the original journal here in our archive. Wow, that's really really fascinating to to see this journal and and uh, look through it and, and compare it to uh, what you wrote in in the yearling. Uh, thanks a lot for sharing this with us, Ben. Absolutely, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist for the Library of Florida History in Coco. And here was the scrub country. Not many people lived here then; just a few pioneers. I found myself a wonderful wife little village nearby. And between us, out of this rolling sea of trees, we cleared and cultivated a little piece of half-fertile ground we call islands, like this one. That was many years ago, but we still live here. We've had our hardships and our happinesses. This is our home. It's called Baxter's Island. That's my name, Penny Baxter. Here's where we live. Me, my wife, Ori, This is Florida Frontiers. The town of St. Cloud began as a retirement community for Union veterans of the Civil War. Chip Ford explains. Looking out upon the urban landscape in Florida, one is sure to find a retirement community. The Sunshine State has lured many seniors to spend their golden years here with warm weather, palm trees, and sunny beaches. Attracting seniors with affordable land and sunny weather is not a new development in the state of Florida. When Hamilton Diston's Central Florida Sugar Empire collapsed in 1895, huge tracts of land along East Lake Tohopecaliga, next to one of his sugar mills, became available for sale. Here's what happened next. The uh, Seminole Land and Investment Company bought up the land and advertised it for the the Tribune, uh, the newspaper in in Washington, D.C. They uh, advertised for the these Union veterans to come down and buy a lot in town and also they had the option of also buying five acres outside of town where they could grow their their uh, products like strawberries, uh, squash, pineapples, citrus, and they advertised that this was an ideal place for the Union veterans to come and heal their wounds and live a healthy life. That was Jean Witherington, interim curator at the St. Cloud Heritage Museum. The Seminole Land and Investment Company was created by the GAR, 
or Grand Army of the Republic, an organization that was one of the first advocacy groups for veterans affairs created in the United States. The investment company decided to name their community after the name of the sugar mill, St. Cloud, which was named after a suburb of Paris. Here is what occurred next once the veterans started arriving in St. Cloud. They all came by train. Something like uh, 600, uh, 600 families came down. When they came down, they found practically nothing. But then as they began building their homes, that some organization sent, I believe, in fact, actually, I think it was the government that uh, sent tents down for them to live in while they were building their homes. They built their own homes. Uh, most of the land here were pine trees. They'd cut the pine trees down and built their homes. Originally, the houses started about what would be 5th Street now to 10th Street. As they started arriving and establishing roots in the community, residents and veterans began to create organizations. They formed uh, the St. Cloud GAR on December 20th, 1909, uh, and the, the charter was granted in 1910. And in the chart it said, all honorably discharged Union soldiers of the War of the Rebellion of either land or sea service, not retaining a membership elsewhere, are eligible to membership in this post. This is the uh, Lucius L. Mitchell post. And the reason why they named it Lucius L. Mitchell was it was in honor of the first veteran who died in St. Cloud. And uh, uh, there were originally 86 charter members of the, the GAR Hall. Once they were organized, they needed to build a meeting hall. Here's how they raised the money. They sold subscriptions to uh, finance this. And the subscriptions were for $1.25 to $2 for the subscription to build the hall. And they, it was uh, told that the actual cost of the hall was only $10,000. Not everyone in Osceola County at the time, though, was happy to see a large group of former Union soldiers settle in a state that was formerly a member of the Confederacy. Well, it was on a Friday night in December of, of 1914 that it was vandalized. But not only did they vandalize the, the bricks on the GAR building, but they vandalized several other uh, places in town. By the time St. Cloud was incorporated in 1915 by the Florida legislature, there was a hotel, library, the GAR meeting hall, a bank, a school, and several hundred homes all built to accommodate the needs of the GAR retirees that came to Florida to enjoy the warmth and healthy lifestyle. They left the state of Florida with two enduring legacies. Well, I, I would say the GAR Hall plus the uh, the actual St. Cloud, the town of St. Cloud, if it weren't for the Union veterans, St. Cloud uh, might have been uh, uh, Disney East. <laughs> You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Be sure to like us on Facebook to get our daily posts today in Florida history. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.